With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks Are Flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list so you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information on how to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today I'm really pleased to have as my guest Ignacio Rivera. Ignacio, let me just go over here. Uh, Ignacio is a cultural sociologist with... Hi. Uh, Ignacio is a cultural sociologist with expertise in sexual trauma, healing, and liberation for marginalized people. They are an internationally known gender nonconforming speaker, trainer, and consultant. Ignacio uses they, them, their as their pronouns and is the founder and director at the HEAL Project. Welcome to the show, Ignacio. Hello, and thank you for having me. So glad to have you. I was really pleased that uh, Sarah Todd told me about you. Really interesting oh, yes, work that yes. you do. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, so I'd like to kind of start out um, by learning a little bit about you, and then we can talk about how your work intersects with ethical non-monogamy and healthy sexuality and stuff like that. So maybe you can first talk about how you got into kind of being an expert around, um, you know, healing sexual trauma. And I, I, you know, you're welcome to share as much of your background as you want to. This is R-rated. You don't have to edit yourself. Um, I know sometimes talking about <laughs> trauma can be triggering for people, but I'm just giving right. you a trigger, giving everyone a trigger alert right now. Um, but just feel free to share as much as you want to about your story that led you to do what you do now. Thank you. Well, um, so I got into um, learning everything there was to know about sex because of my own sexual trauma. Um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse uh, as well as um, rape. And through that traumatic experience, uh, I was in a lot of bad relationships. I wasn't um, being healthy with myself. I was not happy. I had low self-esteem. Uh, and I was not on a healing path. So um, the thing that got me to my healing path was because um, I just kept having really bad relationships. I just wasn't uh-huh. connecting. Uh, and so I needed to change something, and I started going to therapy, and I just started reading a lot. Um, I, I figured I was the common denominator in all of these relationships, and something needed to change, and that needed to be me. And so that was, right. um, you know, accepting what had happened and really figuring out um, how to 
how to journey and the healing through that. And so um, read a lot, <laughs> read a lot, and started doing connecting with people, um, doing workshops. Uh, and just kind of rolled on from there, um, doing a lot of sexual liberation work within uh, POC communities, uh, queer and trans communities, and then ultimately working with uh, families um, to educate their children and young people. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I think that's you know what motivates a lot of us to do our deeper inner work is when our own relationships keep failing and we keep getting triggered and acting like a nutcase, you know, when in our relationships mm-hmm. and we're yeah. like, okay, I'm the common denominator here, like you said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really brave of you. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so do you practice non-monogamy? Yes, I identify as an independent polyamorous. And I've been, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've identified as a polyamorous person for over 20 years, a little over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Cool. I've tried so, um, different... Is... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I've tried different different modes of um, non-monogamy throughout my life uh, and come to um, this version of it for myself, um, which feels really good, um, mm-hmm. which is very much connected to my survivorship and how relationship structures work for me and having like agency in creating that uh so it works very much for me right and so i noticed you use the term independent polyamorous and i know there's Mm -hmm. a term that a lot of people use called solo polyamory how does that differ and what made you decide to choose that title I, I like using independent polyamorous the same, for the same reason I like using independent parent uh, rather than a single parent uh, because for mm. me, it's just a choice. For me, it feels like a solo and single indicate that there's something missing and that you're looking for something else to complete you. Uh, and yeah. so I don't believe that. And so um, for me, it's, um, I like to refer to it as being independent um, rather than single or solo. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. I felt like the term solo polyamory, it felt kind of lonely to me, although I did want to practice it for a couple of years to kind of break mm-hmm. my habit of feeling like I was attached to the hip to somebody else, you know, like I yeah, wanted to feel my exactly. own sovereignty <laughs> and my own freedom in relationships, but I didn't fully identify with that word because it, it just felt like not, I don't want to be solo my whole life. <laughs> right, right. So, right, yeah, and I, I words, think for it's me interesting it's interesting like, how we all play with the words. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I think for me it's like um, the the idea. Well, the idea of um, polyamory uh, or non-monogamy is, you know, um, kind of stepping outside of this framework that was created about how relationships should be. And so, even within polyamory, I felt like we were being constrained in that. Um, um, and the ideas of, like, uh, uh, looking at, let's say, having a primary partner as the best way to uh, to be polyamorous, you know, to, uh, mm-hmm. to practice mm-hmm. polyamory. And I did that for a while. And I think that works really nicely for a lot of people. So I think all of the ways in which I tried were not bad. They just didn't work for me. Um, and mm-hmm. I think uh, it, it's because uh, I have the capacity to love and care 
Um, I just don't want to do it 24 hours a day, and I don't want to, um, like, I don't desire to live with anyone. I don't desire to share a bank account. Um, Yeah, I don't desire any of those things. I like my independence, and I like to be in relationship with people and walk alongside Mm -hmm. them and not integrate my Mm -hmm. life with them. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a very valid choice that a lot of people make. And um, I notice also the clients that I coach tend to be extremely enmeshed, particularly an existing couple that's trying to open their relationship for the first time. I spend Mm -hmm. a lot of the first few sessions just helping them get unenmeshed so they're not all up in each other's shit all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. because they can they can fight over the littlest things because they're so into every nuance of each other's lives. And I think that ethical non monogamy works so much better when when we can find that interdependence, that balance between relying on other people for connection and love and validation, but also mm-hmm. knowing that we can self-source that. And I'm guessing that you, um, because of all the healing you've done around your own childhood abuse, that you've found a way to self-source pretty well. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, I think uh, being, you know, um, queer and also being a survivor, you know, like um, having this kind of experience of creating a chosen family or having found family is really, like, central in my life. And so um, having having just people in my life, um, and I think that even as an independent polyamorous person, you know, the, the, the misconception is that it's lonely, you know, um, but actually it isn't. <laughs> uh, I have like a, a lot of wonderful kinds, different kinds of relationships in my life, which um, which mm-hmm. include my chosen family network. So um, mm-hmm. that's definitely one of, one of my anchors. You know, um, just mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. people like me that I can talk with. Um, uh, yeah, that's like a, mm-hmm. I think the major piece. Mhm. Cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing your personal stuff about that, you know, because I've found that, like you said, we're stepping outside the default model of relationships. And once we do that, the sky's the limit. We get to design it in the way that works best for us as long as we have clear, transparent, and honest communication with our beloveds. We can do whatever we mm-hmm. want. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, gets, yeah. it gets complicated for people, though, because they – I don't think um, we get uh, people get uh, their creativity is a little stunted. I think I think sky's the limit when I think about uh, non-monogamy. We really do have, um, uh, or we should have, you know, the resources and the choices to like create what works best for us. And I I think a lot of communities do that already. You know, um, in terms of the relationships or how they relate to other people. People with disabilities have been doing it forever. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. Poor folks do it um, all the time. Um, so different populations of folks have, you know, have had to relate to one another in different ways that is not the norm, you know. Um, right. And, you know, I think people are talking about, you know, non-monogamy more and more. There are more shows about it and things. But I think still in all, we have further to talk about the the expansiveness uh, of the ways in which we could um, – like love each other and and be connected to one another and care, I think, and care for one another. I think we get locked mm-hmm. up in the sex part. Right, exactly. Yeah, a lot of people think that 
Well, it's kind of, if we use ethical non-monogamy as the umbrella term, for lack of a better umbrella term out there, it does kind of imply that it has to do with sex because you're talking about monogamy versus non-monogamy. So I wish there was a word that we could use for our umbrella term that accounted for the non-sexual relationships we have. You know, for example, I have a partnership that I call a post-romantic partnership where my, my partner mm-hmm. is very important to me and we share a lot of really important things in life um, except we don't share sex, sexuality and romance um, but it's mm-hmm. just as important to me and if I was in like the default monogamy world somebody some new partner might be um, threatened by them because they are right. su- such an important part of my life you know um, but yeah we get to design the uh, the rainbow of relationships as we please. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's about unlearning, too, that big piece. Uh, I think that uh, I've been in a lot of relationships where um, just a big part of it was uh, unlearning for a lot of people, like getting comfortable in this space. Like, uh, like uh, the philosophy was, you know, they believe in the philosophy, but the actual practice of it was really um, something that they weren't uh, ready for. And I think a lot of people think you could just jump right into it, you know. And I think it's just like any relationship, monogamous or non-monogamous. Um, it's the the intent, I think. If you have intent behind it, um, it shifts that. Right, right, right. Um, so let me shift the conversation a little bit to your work with children, um, I know you're on a mission to prevent and end childhood sexual abuse through healing the wounds of sexual oppression. I'm reading this off your website. And embracing mm-hmm. sexual liberation. So I want to hear about, like, how can parents and other sex educators share information about non-monogamy with children? I think it needs to be just integrated into conversations, whether that's through, um, you know, holistic sexuality or everyday conversation, because we talk about monogamy, um, monogamy and heterosexuality pretty much every day of our lives because it's, you know, the norm, right? And so when we teach about relationships and we teach about love or sex, we have to talk about what exists out there, right? Because I think a lot of times we talk about what we know or what we agree with, right? We don't, we don't teach uh, the things that um, we don't agree with. And so uh-huh. the reality is that non-monogamous people, monogamous people exist in the world and we need to be talking about it um, because it gives, it gives options. Um, when, we, when we talk about learning, teaching children about agency, um, this is a great example. Um, this is about thinking about not um, teaching our children about cookie-cutter models that this is the way it is for everyone, which it's not. Um, We have choice and we have agency, and this is about um, learning about um, different ways to navigate um, different systems or um, if you are not a part of that, understanding it because you will meet others who might uh, live this life, right? Um, so it's like trying to get out of the bubble that we've been living in and sheltering children from talking about the reality of human connection and, and, and relationships. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so there's, I'm sure there's a battle with this kind of sexuality education for children because, um, like, I'm thinking, you know, conservative families, just like, you know, birth control or anything, they, they don't want their kids to even know that there are other forms of relationship or that there's such a thing as queer people or there's such a thing as mm-hmm. trans people or any, they don't want them to know any of that stuff, um, whereas those of us that are more open-minded would want children to know about these things so that if they fit into that category, they're not feeling like something's wrong with them. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what kind of hurdles have you run into in trying to teach this broadly? Well, when I, when I talk about this, I'm talking to parents because I'm, I'm working with parents to, be, to talk to their children about sex, uh, sex education because in the school systems, it's a different, it, it functions different way from state to state and the curriculum changes. So I'm trying to work with parents so that they can re-educate themselves and understand their own sexuality and their own uh-huh. sexual trauma so that they can um, talk openly and honestly with their children. And so it's about teaching uh, parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents um, to be um, sharing information, and that's the thing, we lack any kind of information, and without information, um, we can't make proper choices. Right. Yeah, I could imagine parents also having to confront their own wounds as they start to look at all these parts of their own sexuality, so that, that could be a big, a big part of it, I can imagine, for you, is helping the parents through their own traumas. Yeah, one of the uh, a big hurdle too is um, if I teach a child this or if I talk to a kid about this, they're going to want to go do this. This is the this is the argument right. about sex. You know, we don't want to teach sex because they'll go out and do it. And actually, there's exactly. no proof of that. If anything, it's the opposite. The more information mm-hmm. they have, <laughs> they actually don't go trying to run and do it because there's there's no fear, right? We teach with fear constantly, mm-hmm. even. When we think about non-monogamy, uh, most of the times, you know, I remember hearing about non-monogamy as this, you know, people who are non-monogamous are selfish and they're promiscuous. And so we get all the negativity. We, uh, you know, we create a, a, a view of it so that people are like, I can't be that. I won't be that because it's viewed in this negative light. And then people do things in secret. So we're actually creating a... a we continue to regurgitate the system of shame and secrecy. And so that's what we're trying to stop. We don't want to continue, you know, bringing shame. We have to talk about things openly because shame is the tool of, you know, harm doers. They use shame. Uh, So we want to talk about, if we're talking about things openly, it's a curiosity and inquisitiveness. um, And it's information. It's purely information. Right, and what I find with the parents that I work with, that the more charge they have around telling anything, whether it's about non-monogamy or about sexuality, um, the more charge they have, the more charge their kids will pick up. But if they just kind of -of matter-of-factly say like, oh, we love, you know, these friends that come over, they're our beloveds, the kids will just be like, okay, fine, and go back to what they're doing, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, right. I remember, yeah. you know, like, um, so I have a, I have an adult daughter, and she was raised in a household, you know, with me being polyamorous 
uh, and me being very honest with her about it. And um, and it was uh, actually a very good experience because I was very honest with her and we talked really openly about why um, I was deciding to be um, polyamorous, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and you know um, she she got she met my lovers she knew about my relationships um, and we talked and it was it was actually really lovely because we she got to um, connect with me in a way and got to hear about how I managed and she got to tell me how she felt about my lovers and stuff so it was a really open process and my daughter identifies as monogamous she is no way shape or form a non you know non-monogamous non-monogamous uh-huh. but um she respects it she totally respects uh-huh. it and she understands it um but she can't do it but she was raised in a household um learning this and it did not affect her in any negative way if anything it allowed her to expand her mind about the the possibilities of how she connect with people Beautiful. So tell me more about the work you do at the HEAL Project. And um, you've already touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about the intersection of non-monogamy and the prevention of of child sexual abuse. Well, um, we do, uh, we use media to educate. And so we have a lot of video projects out there. And so talking about non-monogamy is integrated into like holistic sexuality. So we talk about non-monogamy, we talk about um, different relationship configurations. We talk about kink and BDSM. We talk about some spiritual sex. Um, we talk about uh, uh, fantasy, role play. All of these things are integrated into talking about um, the broadness of sex. Right? So I think one of the major things of the work is um, really um, expanding our minds out of the small little box that we have when we're thinking about what sex education is, which usually is uh, talking about heterosexual sex, monogamous sex, it's in vagina. That's it. That's, that's kind of like, uh-huh. and it's about prevention. It's about don't get uh-huh. pregnant, don't get a disease, you know, don't be a slut. And basically those, uh-huh. that's like really the hardcore thing. Once you are a teenager and you're getting your hormones, these, these are the messages. If you're a girl, you know, there's a certain kind of messaging. If you're a boy, there's a certain kind of messaging. And so um, there, in, in, in the current way that we teach this, we literally, um, we teach, uh, we create a system of failure. We just create mm-hmm. a system of failure because we don't offer any other, um, you know, uh, any other way to be in a, in, a, in a society that has many, many ways that people love and, and fuck and, and, and relate to one another. And in creating it in such a small way, there's queer people fail in that, trans people fail in that. Um, children who have been sexually abused um, fail in that, right? The way that we see uh, who's worthy of relationships. We've created a, an idea of um, relationships, who's worthy to be in them and stuff. So this is about breaking that down and really opening, uh, opening that up and saying that talking about sex is talking about curiosity, Talking about sex is talking, or holistic sex is talking about self-love. It's talking about um, how you love your friend, <laughs> um, different ways, um, 
that you can experience um, sex and romance without sex and all of these things. We're expanding this because usually this is the stuff that we learn when some of us go to college. We start learning more about our own selves and we move away from our families um, because our families are too scared to talk about it. So it takes us much longer to learn because we're doing the trial and error rather than getting really good information so that we are learning uh, basically from the beginning that there are choices, that they that we have voice, um, that we can um, have agency. We're in a culture of consent right now, which is wonderful, consent culture, but we are, you know, also missing the boat on what are we consenting to because it's limited to saying yes or no. Yes or no to what, right? So we're still limited in the, in the messaging of, like, what is possible. And so if I expand my ideas of love or relationships and sex to, let's say, a kid who's trans or someone or a person who are with a disability, you're expanding their hope of a possible relationship outside of the structure that we have created that says that person is not worthy of love or can never be in a relationship uh, or in a in a, a mainstream-looking kind of a relationship, right? So it goes beyond just people wanting to have, like, a lover, more than one lover. It is, uh, again, I keep going to the way that we relate to one another, how we connect uh-huh. with one another. Um, and in order to do that, we have to know ourselves. Like, I, I think being a poly, a poly person is uh, a consistent work about knowing yourself because in order to relate to others and have multiple relationships that are healthy, that means that you're doing introspective work constantly. So how do you learn how to do that introspective work, right? We don't usually learn that in this society where we learn that we integrate with a lover, two people become one, and we lose ourselves, right? So this is a, I think it's just a, an upgraded version of talking about um, how we sustain relationships and get out of the fantasy and talk about reality of, con- of, of us having power and constructing um, what can work. And in that, because we have the information and the knowledge, we're powerful with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was beautiful. I, I'm a big fan of more information, um, you know, removing the shame. Um, and, you know, I did the Human Awareness Institute workshops 20 years ago, and I often say that I wish every person on their 18th birthday would go to one of those workshops where they can just (laughs) learn about their bodies and, you know, learn how to talk about things and ask for what they want and stuff like that. Um, So I can Mm -hmm. really see why the skills that you learn from non-monogamy would translate to skills that prevent abuse and allow you to heal um, as a survivor. Um, but can you say anything more specific about the intersection of non-monogamy and healing for survivors? Well, uh, well, I'll say this too about um, one of the one of concrete thing that comes out, especially for me, is about boundary setting. Um, as, mm-hmm. as a survivor, boundaries are really, really important. And through yeah. um, non-monogamy, 
through the practice of non-monogamy, and actually I have to say through BDSM, because I'm a BDSM practitioner for over 20 years as well, I learned everything I needed to learn about how to negotiate and how to communicate my feelings, desires, and concerns, and to create uh-huh. my boundaries, you know. Um, and so that is one very, very clear thing, um, because uh, it's a huge piece of... Um, uh, navigating relationships with different people, creating different boundaries with different people and how that functions, how to metamorphs function properly, right? We're creating boundaries and we're learning how to be with one another and not just us, uh-huh. but other people we connect with as well. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. So um, uh, the question was, um, I'm sorry. Um, the intersection of non-monogamy and, and healing for survivors. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Um, so I, I would give a great example of myself. Um, so uh, uh, one of the things, I, I do this workshop that I've been doing for, oh, God, well over a decade called Sexy Survivor. And Sexy Survivor uh, is a workshop I created uh, for survivors of uh, sexual violence, uh, sexual trauma, um, to come together in a community healing kind of a model so that, we can um, kind of talk and brainstorm and share information about the ways in which we are or can be sexual beings um, despite our sexual trauma. And so mm-hmm. uh, this is like a, it's been, I've done it in three hours, a full day, uh, um, and this workshop really, um, really like talks a lot about this this intersection because one of the things that comes up a lot for people is this this thing about being broken right that's like a common theme um for survivors you know i feel broken uh because that brokenness comes from because they almost sometimes we feel like a square trying to fit into a circle um because there's a relationship model um that is here and i have to fit into this relationship model so that i can be normal and have normal sex and have a normal life after this traumatic experience, right? For some people, that is very, very possible. Um, They could have, you know, a great relationship and not have um, a lot of things come up for them, right? And then there are other people that many things come up when it comes to uh, intimacy, connecting with others, our time with other people, our trust of other people, um, many things can come up for survivors. And so um, when I kept on trying to fit myself into the structure, I kept failing. Uh, and I didn't understand why, because I loved the people that I was with, but it just didn't work out for me for a variety of reasons. One, because I felt, uh, in one instance, I felt very smothered, and another, I felt... Um, that I could not get all my needs met by this one person, and I did not want to be the one giving, uh, you know, providing all of um, this person's needs to them as well. So it was a constant mm-hmm. struggle to try to figure it all out and, and be healthy and try and uh, heal. And so through trial and error and, you know, some good and some crappy and shitty relationships, I realized um, that, I needed to create a different space for myself. There were just kinds of people that I wanted to be in relationship with. So really, the relationships I have 
the time I spend with people, the sex I have with them, all is uh, uh, circulating around the way I am healing. Um, mm-hmm. What fits uh, and helps for my PTSD, you know. And so I navigate that, I negotiate that um, with uh, different partners, and that's what works because I have a, I have a voice in that, and I'm in control of that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's one of the, like I have to say, one of the biggest, biggest, biggest pieces for me as a survivor is control. Um, mm-hmm. Control was taken away from us, and it's something that we struggle with a lot. And so to have mm-hmm. control um, over how to navigate a relationship that doesn't feel like this is a, like I'm floating in a fantasy. This is real, and it feels logical to me. And um, and and it's accountable. It's actually very accountable because we have the rules. We have all of these in place. So when things fuck up, we can go back to the words and the commitments that we made to one another. And it's really clear to me. So those things um, create this wonderful like safety bubble um, for me um, that makes me feel good, and I feel I can thrive in it. Um, yeah. So that's like one way Wonderful. Um, that I'm thinking yeah, about. Yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. You're quite a role model for this. I, I really appreciate your transparency about your own journey. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Ignacio Rivera, who is the founder of HEAL, and is an expert in helping um, young people learn about alternative forms of sexuality. I don't even like to use the word alternative, but just the full rainbow (laughs) of options that we have in our life. Um, If you want to ask Ignacio any questions, you're welcome to call in now. You won't interrupt us. We'll just put your call on hold and answer it at the right time. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. Again, that's 657-383-1132. So, Ignacio, when you were talking about um, learning um, boundaries from uh, BDSM, um, it Mm -hmm. sparked my curiosity around, and I agree that the way that you need to negotiate scenes in BDSM is such a great skill mm-hmm. set that can be transferred to vanilla sex or anything um, as far as like really learning what you want and don't want, what your boundaries are, what kind of mood you want to create. Like it's just, it's such a great um, tool set for all areas of your life. But my question is yeah. how, how does that like, how do you make that age appropriate for children? Oh, you know, people ask me that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> because it's the you know I can I give my whole sexuality model and I have curiosity I have all these nice little things and BDSM is there and that's the first question all the time. Uh, so you're telling me I should teach my four year old about BDSM and so I say <laughs> no actually I'm not saying that. <laughs> what I'm saying is that BDSM and kink are a part of human sexuality. Period. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's there. And so depending on the age of your child, um, and you get, to fig- you get to decide that, right, because often people want to know what is, you know, what is the appropriate age. And I am of the camp that 
if you have a relationship with your child, you know the capacity of your child, and you get to give them information as you see fit because a grid on a wall isn't going to tell you about your child, right? So if you have a relationship with them, you can you can tell what information you can feed to them little by little, right? And so like you even said it just just a few minutes ago, you can take specific skill sets from kink and BDSM to teach about negotiation and stuff. You don't actually have to say, um, you know, talk about whips or things like that, right? We're, we're, yeah. we're talking about what is helpful from this. Okay, the helpful thing is this. BDSM is, some people call it an alternative lifestyle. What is good to know about it, there's a good key points on it. The BDSM community has been an oppressed community, um, and now, you know, coming out of it, there's a history in the gay community, you know, um, and it's a, a community that comes together to explore um, different um, power dynamics and sexuality. So mm-hmm. with, with, with BDSM, talking about power is a wonderful uh, teaching tool right there because the BDSM community or BDSM practice is all about the intentional playing with power. Like that's uh-huh. all it is. It's about power. Whether you're doing it psychologically, whether you're doing it physically, whether you're doing it sexually, it's all power play. The difference is you know that you're doing power play. You're you're agreeing to this and maybe one person is a dominant, one person is a submissive, and that's how that works out. But in teaching that power, we often do not talk about power at all when we talk about just sex or even when we're uh-huh. talking about, you know, heterosexual monogamous, you know, relationships. Does the does the conversation of power ever come up? Rarely. We dance around the conversation of power. Like for instance, if you have a cis girl, a girl that you are trying to teach about sex, I almost guarantee that the conversation is going to be around um her safety around boys, right? It's uh-huh, going to be uh-huh. about how to protect herself, right? Um, because um, bad things happen, right? Because of sexual violence, right? That is a conversation about power. You're just not using the word power, right? We're, right. We, um, we want to talk about power because we're talking about the differences of cis men and cis women. Um, we're talking about the differences of white people and people of color. We're talking about the differences mm-hmm. of able-bodied people and people with disabilities. So, and and if we're... And I bring all of those things up because most times people say, why do you bring that up when we're talking about sex? Um, Because these are the people that are engaged in different sex and different kinds of relationships. Not everybody is a thin, able-bodied, beautiful person who's worthy of love and relationship and, you know, marriage and two children, right? Mm -hmm, Um, Different mm -hmm. people have different experiences. So the, the conversation of power is important to talk about the power of different people, but also the power that we hold when we relate to one another. So BDSM um, kind of um, has you in this kind of uh, equal playing field when you are negotiating these things. When you're in the real world, you're always kind of dancing around power, right, Um, depending on Mm -hmm. who you are, whether you're rich or poor or anything. So um, there's a great lesson in there about power dynamics, um, who holds power? What does power look like? How does someone yield power? How does someone relinquish power? 
Um, I can go on and on about power because that, that can oh, go I on love for days. That. No, you know. It's a great topic and true. It could be it could be its own episode. Um, it makes me think of um, the intersection of kink and child abuse. You know that that's the ultimate in a powerless situation for a child. So for them to be able to understand that that they didn't have power because it's so common for children to blame themselves or think that they did something wrong and so for them to mm-hmm. understand that they were powerless they couldn't give their consent I think that feels feels like a really important part of the healing yeah mm-hmm. and also it's just a, I also the thing about kink and BDSM is that it's a it's a learning community everything there everything you do like you don't just go and do something. You learn about it first. You there's safety precautions, right? So it's about Correct. it's also about this this um patience in learning things, right? Um even if it's like uh you know, learning about learning about having a relationship if if your child is has a crush on somebody, right? It's like it's it's this patience about um taking uh time and care about how you um uh, how you can connect successfully with this person, right? Because we always jump into things. Um, uh-huh. And it's also about communication, like totally about communication. You can't do kink and BDSM without communicating, right? And the way we do relationships now is, again, it's it's a really kind of fantasy-based. It's really not based in a lot of, like, conversation. It's like, you know, you see someone, you're physically attracted to them, and sometimes that's all it takes, Right. And mm-hmm. so with this, it's like it, it, it's a deeper conversation about one instance, you know, I've, when I've uh, wanted to negotiate with someone, to play with them, to have a scene with them, one of my first questions to a person is, um, what are you into? What do you like? And when, if a person says to me, um, I, you know, I like it all or I like whatever you like, that's a red flag for me. Because mm-hmm. I want someone to tell me exactly what they like. And if they don't know it, I want them to tell me. I actually have no idea what I want, but I want to explore. That's communicating mm-hmm. and that's showing something right. That That's teaching that we, are, that we have that voice, that we don't have to do what other people want because they desire it, um, because they like doing it. And a lot of people fall into that. Adults fall into that now. You know, we want to please other people so we forego our own things. So communicating is another piece of it, too. It's like it's deep communicating when you are really trying to do um, BDSM correctly, you know, understanding people's bodies, you know, understanding people's uh, injuries, you know, if they had an injury. It really is about care as well. Like, I would like to play with you, but first I want to know, do you have any injuries? Uh, can you be on your knees for long periods of time? Um, are there any words that I should not use that are triggering? I mean, this, uh-huh. depending on who you are in BDSM and and how you function, and it, it could look like that, right? To me, uh-huh. that uh-huh. feels absolutely safe, and it feels like a good conversation to have about a wonderful a wonderful safety container that a group of people um, have used. Um, and so we can extract some good, um, some you know, good habits from uh, from that because it, it it works. 
Yes, I mean that that's a whole nother thing. Asking for what you want is is a whole nother skill that's so undeveloped in our culture. I just see it over and over again. You know, as a mature woman, um, you know, a, a straight woman, I'll, I'll date these men that are over sixty, and it's amazing that so many of them have never had a lover in their entire life. You know, tell them what mm. they want. They they're, they grew mm-hmm. up just being programmed that they should just know somehow and they should just figure it out and then if they meet somebody that that asks for what they want is very clear and talks about it they just don't even know what to do with that (laughs) it just blows their mind Mm -hmm. so yeah we we all need to get better at that and have the permission i think because of the sexual shame right that we don't have the permission to to figure it out and then to be able to talk about it you know like to to really like have a conversation and that's what's great about kink is that you know it's more acceptable to have a conversation before you start whereas in like vanilla sex you're supposed to just go right into it and like know exactly what you're going to do without having that kind of Mm -hmm. pre-conversation right (laughs) yeah yeah well we're not taught that right and so that that's the thing that i want to i want that to become like 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 human nature common knowledge like before anything it's like we talk you know, we get information, mm-hmm. and I want to see, you know, I want to see if I'm going to say yes or no to that, like to to allow for young people to feel that power and say, mm-hmm. I'm going to get the information that I need, and then I'm going to make that decision. That doesn't mean that they're going to make the right decision every time, but they can make that decision, and if it is the wrong one, then later on they can learn from those things. It's about we all fuck up, you know. It's about what do we do with the fuck-ups, right? We have information, we learn, and we try to make it better. That's all we can do. But we can only mm-hmm. do that when, when we have, you know, people talking about these things openly and honestly and not in secret because then you'll get bad information, very bad information. Right. And, and, the, tr- trial right. and, error, and the trial and error cycle will just take longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I find that so many people in the default world of sexuality, the mainstream, they have this belief that if you stop and talk about what you're going to do, that somehow that will take away from the turn-on. Like the turn-on is this kind of escalator that's revving up, and at any point if you stop the energy, it's going to go away and never come back. And I just don't think that (laughs) turn-on has to be like – uh, an escalator that way it can ebb and flow and you can stop and talk and and if it's meant to be it will come back and it's just a different way yeah. of thinking about sexuality than the, the what we all grew up with in our default world yeah it's like getting out of the the harlequin romance and the you know movies like that's how that's how it all is and people just think you know this is the way it's supposed to be it, it is and it really isn't. And, you know, a, a lot of people will bring that up to me, too. It's like, you know, you talk about communication and negotiation, but, you know, I want things to happen naturally, and it just feels like work if I right. talk about things, right? Right, So, you right. know, I often say, you know, you, you make a decision. Um, you, can, you can talk about things, and I think, I think there are different ways to communicate things without having to, like, sit at a table and talk about it, Right. And I think people right. just uh, really think about it so like we're having a business meeting and now we're going to talk about our sex, you know, <laughs> and, and it, could be, it could be really sexy. You know, you can. I actually personally love having negotiation dates. 
I call them that. Mm-hmm. When I when I meet someone new and we are thinking about, you know, possibly becoming lovers, um, we have a, like, sit down at a cafe somewhere and we have a negotiation date. We literally sit there and just talk about the things that we desire, the things that we're curious about, things that worked in the past, things that, you know, work now, boundaries. Talk about it all, and then we make another date for the actual stuff. There's no I love that. at all. Uh, and I, and it's the separation of that feels really good because it doesn't feel so, um, like, scary in the moment. Like, oh, well, are we going to mm-hmm. talk about it? Are we going to do it now? So the negotiation date is purely talking and flirting. You know, we're going to talk and flirt, talk and flirt, and then the next date is the actual thing that we flirted about and negotiated about on our day, getting to know each other. All right, um, so I can that, imagine I that, that being incredibly hot to be talking about yeah. that stuff, but like be in a cafe where you can't actually act on it, so it just builds the right. desire. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. And and um, and I often say another way, too, is um, I, I say that you can – you can negotiate what you want without words as well and in the moment. You know, you uh-huh. can be in the moment with someone. And if, let's say, someone reaches to touch your ass and you'd rather that they touch your breast, you just gently grab their hand and put it on your breast. And you keep moving that person, guiding them, adjusting your uh-huh. body, using your facial expressions to indicate yes. What you're doing right now is what I want, right? And if it's uh-huh, something that uh-huh. you didn't want, you navigate their hand. You're not talking, but you're showing the person exactly what you want, right? You're navigating uh-huh. them. And if they're, if they're following, you're leading that, right? I think that uh-huh. we can be creative about how we get to say or show the things that we want without compromising ourselves um, or our, our safety, feeling, you know, unsafe. Cool. Well, um, before we run out of time, I want to ask you a little bit about um, you identify as a sociologist, and um, I want to just hear your thinking about how non-monogamy, um, you know, can be discussed as a larger political matter. Oh, absolutely. Um, polyamory, um, I, I talk a lot about the, in talking about sexual liberation, I often say we need to often talk about oppression and the history of oppression, and that includes, um, you know, thinking about the sterilization of women with disabilities and poor women and women on welfare um, and the criminalization of sex work and so forth, so on and on, you know, like uh, homosexuality being a um, um, illegal at one point, um, and so I bring all these things up to say that these things, these instances, um, these uh, uh, legal things that once existed or still exist are a part of, you know, our you know, sexual liberation or what shapes, you know, sexual liberation. And so, or shapes our ideas of sexual liberation. And so mm-hmm. um, this is, huge in a lot of ways um, because, one, um, the ways that we think about family uh, is really limiting for a lot of uh, ways. Um, um, When we think about um, um, gay marriage, um, which I have my own uh, views on, but even uh, with gay marriage, um, here is another way of expanding um, the ways in which 
um, we're having relationships and in the political light, the fight uh, uh, about that. Um, right now, we're, there are tons of things out there where parents are, you know, in polyamorous relationships and uh, children are being threatened to t- be taken away, you know, from their home because it's uh, seen as unfit or unstable. Right. The ideas about sex, sexuality, sexual shaming, and heterosexual or normative, you know, monogamous relationships are the ideal, and anything outside of that is uh, kind of a a threat to that structure. And so talking Uh openly about polyamory and making it a political, um, it is uh, political, it's not private. Uh, It is a private matter that is very, very much political because it it does... um, it it uh it's about our lives, about um, how we can and cannot marry, who we can live with, and how we raise the children or have children. It's changing all of these things. I think I just saw something in the news, uh, in the media, where there was the first time three uh, three people in a poly a polyamorous relationship adopted a child for the first time. The three of them got yes, to be uh-huh. the legal, yeah, right, and so that is very political, right? Um, they had to fight uh, for that to actually happen. So um, as we continue to try to shift culture and I've been thinking about relationships and love and sex and um, all that, we uh, it is very political because we have to do the education um, as we expand our thinking on it. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And so much about the the hetero um, nuclear family model is based on the settler mentality of, you know, one white male king of every domain. And if you don't fit into that mm-hmm. model, then you're just marginalized. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so what, it, it's... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I'm good. Um, so one last question. Um, if you could change one thing about the way we form relationships, what would it be? Hmm. I would say, um, I think I think it would be honesty. It sounds corny, but it would be honesty. I think um, we uh, we lie constantly. We lie to ourselves. Um, we deny ourselves the things that we want. Um, and when we're in relationships, we lie because we're scared to hurt other people. I think um, when we become honest with ourselves, um, truly honest with ourselves and other people, we get to be happy. <laughs> we get to really be happy. And being honest is really, really hard. And that's getting to know what you like, what you don't like, um, what you desire. So that's really getting to the core of honesty, I think. Yes, I agree. I see so much of this with the couples I work with who are trying to open their relationship. Um, They're so afraid to tell the other what they really want. They're protecting the Mm. other. They're they're thinking it's their job to keep their partner from being upset or feeling hurt. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, again, that model of just like, it's a a codependent, um, unhealthy codependency that we just, kind of fall into because of the the current model we have doesn't really um, um, allow for us to to see outside of that or to grow uh, or to um, not take responsibility for somebody else's feelings um, and to, yeah, to, to be completely honest 
It's so scary, but it's so liberating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end, if you're the one that doesn't want to hear the truth from your partner, um, that's about ego, right? That's like about you want to control mm. them to keep you from being upset somehow. Like, how would you describe, how would you help somebody who's on the other side who's hearing a truth that's super painful to hear? Mm. I mean, I would say, first and foremost, try not to, um, you know, react immediately. Uh, you know, just take it in. I, I often say take some time to think before responding because it, that's our natural reaction, knee-jerk reaction, and really yeah. assess. Um, because um, I think this is what it's about. When we do the honesty, when we do the communication, it really is about assessing, and it is about accountability. Because if you're in a relationship with multiple people and stuff, you're really needing to hear how who you are from other people. Who you are is not just about how you think of yourself. Who you are is also about how other people um, relate to you and how they see you as well. Uh-huh. So you have to be uh-huh. open to listening to that and growing from that because, uh, not, you know, non-monogamy or in, in any relationship, it should not be stagnant. And so if it's stagnant, you're not growing and you're not listening. Right. Perfect. Well, before we run out of time, Ignacio, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can reach you and um, if you have anything you want to offer our listeners, take it away. Yeah, um, uh, you can check out the HEAL project at HEAL to N. That's H-E-A-L, the number two, and E-N-D, heal org, And on social media, all social media platforms, we're HEAL to End. Um, yeah, we have several um, media projects that are out, um, some survivor-focused um, um, shows um, and some um, really good uh, show called Connecting the Dots where we use media to educate folks and talk about prevention as something that everyone needs to be talking about. So check it out, healtoend.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was a delight speaking with you. I really appreciate the work that you're doing in the world, so keep it up. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, so next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, I will have as my guest Genevieve Ibarra, who is an embodiment coach. Um, She teaches relationships um, and really helping you be in your body as you show up for your relationships to really have the most fulfilling connection and fulfilling life that you can. And um, she's just a great example of someone who lives that way. So please join us next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio. And we'll talk to you then. Good night, everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.